here. Uh, and uh, it has not been an easy thing to be able to meet here together. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, there was this just like really freak power outage throughout the town of Carmel. Uh, it happened about 8 o'clock in the morning, and we didn't know when the lights were going to get back on, so we ended up having to, uh, to cancel church that morning. Um, and of course, the lights came back on at about 10 o'clock, so uh, we could have, but you have to make those calls. Uh, last week with the ice, and uh, this week is not that bad, just a little bit chilly out. But uh, man, it's great to see everybody here, and uh, what a gift it is to gather together. For those of you who uh, are tuning in with us online, uh, welcome. We're so glad uh, to have those options so that uh, we can just continue to meet and build the community that is uh, Lakeview Community Church. If you're uh, with us for the first time this morning, uh, welcome. Really glad you're here. If you'd like any more info uh, about who we are, what we're about, how we do church here, uh, there's more information out at the greeting table. And there's a bunch of things going on, um, even now in the middle of this cold season. Uh, we are one week into what many of us are doing, this journey of uh, a 21-day fast of some point, of some type. Some people are are giving up different kinds of things uh, in an effort to kind of take the focus off of uh, things that usually have our hearts, places where we usually go for comfort, and just uh, turn and incline our hearts towards the Lord. So uh, um, one of the things I did is just uh, took some social media apps and hit delete on my iPhone. And, uh, you know, you get those weekly reports. Mine popped up this morning, and my usage was down by like 39%. Um, which, man, you know, those are hours like you're never going to get back. And boy, I can tell you, I did not miss one bit of uh, not having uh, to look on my phone more, right? None of us are going to look back on our lives and say, I really wish I spent more time staring at my phone. But seeking the Lord is, uh, is a good thing uh, in each and every season. Um, we also have our life groups starting back up again uh, this coming week, and we haven't had a lot of chance to announce that because we haven't been around a lot, but uh, if you would be interested in joining a life group, uh, there is information about that out at the greeting um, desk and also online, and I'd uh, love to just uh, get you connected to one of those. These are one of the ways that we make our church a larger church into a more small-knit community. Um, and it's a chance to just share our hearts with each other, to open up the Word of God together, and to just, uh, just care for each other. Um, so they're a lot of fun, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, getting those going. So let's just pray now, and we'll open up God's Word together. Father God, thank you for this good morning. Thank you that we can meet again. Lord, what a, uh, what a privilege it is. And uh, Lord, I thank you for all the faces here. Lord, for all those online who are with us and uh, Lord, for the good work that you're doing. So, Lord, we pray now that as we open up your word, uh, Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts, that we might see Jesus. Uh, Lord, that you would do that Holy Spirit work in our lives, that we might um, be transformed more into his likeness from the inside out. So we pray to that end in his great name. Amen. You know, every car comes equipped with a dual beam lighting system as standard equipment. You don't have to even pay more for this. There's, there's low beams, right, which are for normal nighttime driving, and then um, you have your high beams. So the low beams uh, light up at 700 lumens, and, and they light up about 300 feet of the road in front of you. Um, that's about the distance of a football field, and that seems like more than enough um, light 
But when you're driving at 60 miles an hour, it takes just 3.4 seconds to cover that distance. And so that's where the high beams come on there. They, they light up at 1,200 lumens, and they light up about twice, almost twice the distance of the low beams. That's up to 500 feet. Um, so the obvious question would be that if the high beams are so much brighter and so much better, why not just keep them on all the time, right? The, the, the answer we all know, of course, is illumination overload, right? The, the high beams are just too bright, and so if you're driving at night and the driver on the other side of the road has their high beams on, it, it blinds you, right? You start seeing spots, and it's not fun, and it's not safe. And so the Department of Motor Vehicles specifies switch off your high beams when you're within 500 feet of oncoming traffic. Um, the switch uh, that triggers the high beams on and off is typically the turn signal, right? Uh, you, you pull the lever towards you for the temporary flash, and you push it away from you to engage the high beams fully. And as we all know, uh, anything with a trigger can and most definitely will get weaponized. And that's what oftentimes happens, right? On the road, when someone hits you with their high beams, what do you do? You Typically, you flash yours back at them, right? And, and if they don't get the, 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 the hint and they don't switch their high beams off, then you hit them again, but this time you pull forward and you put it in full blast on them. That way, neither you nor them can see. What a great idea, right? <laughs> or how about when, when someone cuts you off in, in the road at night, you can just show them some love. Bam! Take that. Hit them with your high beams. How do you like that, right? Uh, but, but the high beams aren't all aggressive and, and negative. Uh, flashing high beams is also a way to signal to the oncoming cars that, uh, that there's a cop in the vicinity, right? It actually, in certain states like Florida, um, it's upheld as a protected constitutional right of free speech to flash your lights. Uh, but be careful about doing that in New York because it's we don't have those same rights, and if you flash your high beams at a cop car, you're very likely to get pulled over and uh, end up with a ticket in your hands. The, the passage we're looking at this morning is a lot like getting hit with the high beams. It's about encountering Jesus in high beam mode. It's something that's stunning, and it's disorienting, and it's even terrifying and overwhelming. But here's the thing, it may be exactly what God has in mind for you this morning. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the series is called The Journey, and, and the journey is about discovering who Jesus is. Uh, that's something that took quite a bit of time for Jesus' first followers to figure out. And as we're walking through their journey of discovery, I hope that it's helping us as well as we walk through our own spiritual journey. And so let me just do a little bit of catch-up to where we left off last week. Uh, last week, Peter had identified Jesus as the Christ. And this was an absolute milestone moment on his journey. But he's still not seeing clearly. Uh, because in, in their minds, that title, the Christ, Israel's long-promised Savior, the one who'd been foretold throughout the Old Testament, that title was loaded with baggage. The expectation is that when the Christ came, 
He was going to lead God's people to a military victory. He was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And for lack of a better word or term, he was going to make Israel great again, right? He was going to reestablish them to that place of world dominance. But the very next thing Jesus does after Peter's good confession is he sticks a pin in that expectation and blows it up. He blows up their assumption with this audacious statement that we looked at last week. Chapter 8, verse 31, he explains to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the religious leaders, killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, because we are like 2,000 years removed from this reality, from this first century setting, and because most of us at least have some knowledge of the storyline of the Gospels, and we know how the story ends, it's really hard for us to grasp just how incomprehensible that must have sounded uh, to them when they, who are hearing it for the first time. So, so imagine this. Imagine quitting your job to volunteer for someone who shows incredible potential. You meet someone, you've never met anyone like them before, you know this guy is going places, so you just leave everything behind and you follow him and and he leads you all over the country and everything just seems to be clicking into place. And, And it actually seems like things are going to line up for him to turn into the next viable nationwide presidential candidate. Everything looks so good. But then he has a sit down and he says, all right, guys, listen up. Here's the game plan. I'm going to go to Washington. I'm going to get abused by the political leaders. I'm going to get arrested by the CIA. I'm going to be put in jail, put on trial, made a mockery of, found guilty, and then I'll be handed a death sentence, and I'm going to be executed in an electric chair. And after that, three days later, I'll come back to life. That's incomprehensible. And as as, as absurd as that sounds to us, it was even more so to them. Peter hears those words come out of Jesus' mouth, and he shifts into intervention mode. It says he took Jesus aside, and he started rebuking him. But Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he doubles down. He doesn't open up the floor and say, hey, guys, let's have some conversation. I would love to hear your feedback on my plan. No, he doesn't. He clarifies that if their intention, if your intention, my intention, if our intention is to follow him, it's going to mean walking down that same path with him. The journey with Jesus gets traveled along a road called self-denial and surrender. The road's not called Easy Street. So following him It's not the path of least resistance, but Jesus does promise that it is the best possible and the only viable option for how to go about living life. So that's where things are at. The disciples have been trying to absorb the shock of what Jesus has just told them, this incomprehensible statement. He's, they've been sitting and stewing on this for six days when our passage this morning opens up. So they've had six days to, to kind of digest everything they've heard. And in those six days, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that they've been asking themselves a lot of questions. Like, what in the world are we doing? Like, I don't know what's gotten into this Jesus guy We've been following him, but he is off the rails right now. 
this following Jesus thing, it's not playing out the way that we expected, and this is definitely not what I signed up for. See, the disciples were at a crossroads. I don't know if you've ever been at a crossroads. I think we all have at one time or another, Um, but it's not all that often when Jesus' agenda lines up with our expectations. Have you noticed that? If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you probably have come to that conclusion. And it's so easy for us to project our expectations on him. And so we assume things like, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll do life your way. And in return, my problems are going to go away. And life is going to get so much easier. And I'll be successful. And people will pay attention to me. And I'll get the stuff that I want. And the struggles are going to stop. And things are going to start falling into place. That is my plan for Jesus' life. But then eventually the moment arrives when we figure out that Jesus' agenda and our expectations are irreconcilably different. They cannot coexist. His plans are always better and deeper and richer and fuller, but they're just a whole lot different from the things that we usually have in mind. And what needs to happen is those expectations that we bring to the table, they've got to drop. So his agenda and his expectations can move forward. And, and that's, that's what the disciples are wrestling with right now. They're, they're confused. They're conflicted. They're disillusioned. And maybe they're not even sure if they want to keep on following Jesus. So maybe you're at a crossroads like that this morning. If you can relate, and I do believe that at some point in life, at one time or another, all of us can relate. So, so let's listen uh, to what happens next. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9, and uh, starting uh, in verse 1, it says this, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So let me just stop there for just one second, because this is sort of the bridge between last week's passage and this week's passage, and uh, if you were here last week, there was this whole metaphor about blind and sight, uh, being able to see and not being able to see. And Jesus makes this point, you guys don't have any spiritual eyes. And he closes that with this, with this expectation that some of you are going to see. Not all of you, but some of you are going to see something that's going to blow your minds. And a lot of people have a lot of questions about this verse, and I think it's fulfilled in what we're going to read next, where not all of them, but three of them see something Very strong and very powerful. So here's what it says. Um, It says, After six days, Jesus took took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they, never, they, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. Okay, so in this scene, uh, God flips on the high beams. He he addresses the struggle that the disciples are working through, not with explanation, but with revelation. Because at the close of this scene, after everything has been done, they're still filled with questions. And, And Jesus' agenda, it's still pretty confusing to them. And what he wants from them still doesn't make a whole lot more sense than it did at the beginning of this passage. Uh, The difference, the only difference is that all that uncertainty, all that doubt, all that confusion has been eclipsed by this overwhelming glimpse of the glorified Jesus. That's, That's it. The headlights are on him and they're on full. They go from low beam to high beam. And they see Jesus for who he is. And that was enough for them. And for us today, it's enough as well to see him as he is. Now, this is not the only high beam moment in in Scripture. This is something that uh, you do see from time to time throughout the Bible. The theological term is what's called a theophany or or a, a God sighting. And so one example is in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. He, he was working through his own season of disillusionment after King Uzziah had died. Now, a prophet's job in, their, in that day was to, was to speak directly into the king's life. And most of the kings weren't very receptive to that. Um, they didn't care what the prophets had to say. But Uzziah, for a while, seemed to be the exception. Things were going well for a long time, but then pride set in. And Uzziah crashed and burned, and another king bites the dust. That's kind of the story of the kings of the Old Testament. And in the wake of all the confusion, it says in chapter 6, verse 3 of Isaiah, Isaiah writes this, in the year that King Uzziah died, in other words, at this moment when things were a total mess, when nothing seemed to make any sense, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And he goes on and he describes that overwhelming sight in vivid detail. See, Isaiah didn't get explanation. He got revelation. God flipped on the high beams and he saw the Lord for who he was. And that was enough. The difference here is that this select group of disciples, they arrive at the the top of the mountain and it's Jesus that they see high and lifted up. The father showcases the son, and they see this Jesus that they've been following is himself the Lord. He's exalted, he's glorified, and he's in a league all his own. So the word that is used here, it says that Jesus became transfigured before them. Uh, This scene is known as the transfiguration. It's a big term. Uh, The Greek word is metamorpho, and it's the same word that we get the word metamorphosis from, right? The the word we use to describe that transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. And the core identity is the same, but the form is completely different. And this, this scene it's not showcasing a new side to Jesus that hadn't existed previously. It's not like, look, he's achieved to a new level, and look who he's become. No, this is, 
This is the same Jesus that's always been, the eternal, glorious Jesus. The difference is that what had been up to this time hidden beneath his humanity is for this moment exposed so they can see him in all of his glory. And in that moment, they find out despite everything they thought they knew about this Jesus they've been following, there was a whole lot more that they had to learn. When the high beams flip on, we see that Jesus is more. He's more than just a cool guy that we can hang out with and who can do miracles and, and tricks, right? He's, he's more than a man. He's more than a teacher. He's more than just a moral example. When we see him as he is, we see that Jesus is the Lord, that his very presence reflects and radiances an absolute undiluted glory. He describes it as this blinding white light, brighter than any white that we've ever laid eyes on. It just emanates from him. And onto this already overwhelming scene, uh, company shows up. Two spiritual giants, Elijah and Moses. And they start having a conversation with Jesus. And we don't know what the topic of conversation was. I would love to have been a fly on the wall to just have listened to that. But, uh, but that's not the point. The point is that these two Hall of Fame heroes, they serve as a reference point and do nothing more than just emphasize the exclusivity of Jesus Christ that he is in a league and in a category all his own. And so the disciples are there. And remember, they thought they were just going on a hike, right? And they, are, got, they got so much more than they ever expected. They're overwhelmed. They're in full freak-out mode at what their eyes are seeing. And, you know, we all react differently to overwhelming situations, right? Um, when Peter freaks, he speaks. Anybody like that? right? When things get like really crazy, you just start talking. Um, he just opens up his mouth and whatever words are in there are going to just start spilling out. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. It doesn't matter if it's the right thing to say. None of that matters. It's just something needs to be said and that's what Peter does. He says, it is good that we are here. We can build uh, some shrines or some shelters for each of the three of you. And there's no response. It's just like this awkward silence, you know, like how socially awkward a moment was that? But Peter is, what he's trying to do, he's trying to honor Jesus. He's trying to put him on the same plane in the same category as these two spiritual giants. Yeah, there's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. This is the top tier. Jesus, you are on that top tier. No words, but, but this cloud appears. And then out of the cloud the voice of God speaks and says this, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There's, there's both identity, right? This is who he is, my beloved son. And there's also instruction. This is how to respond. This is what to do. Listen to what he's telling you. Okay, so the question then is, is who exactly is this voice of God referring to? Is, is it Moses? Is Moses the beloved son of God? Is Elijah the one that we ought to listen to? It says when they look, both Elijah and Moses are gone, and Jesus alone is left. The high beams, they shine on him alone, Jesus, 
He's the one and the only beloved son of God in an exclusive way, in a way that could not be said of Moses, that could not be said of Elijah, that could not be said of you or of me or of any other person on this planet. Jesus. And, and to make the point clear, uh, it's not just the religious, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders who, who don't apply those words to themselves. Those words also don't apply to any of the world religious leaders. Doesn't apply to Mohammed. Doesn't apply to Buddha. Doesn't apply to Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or any of the other people this world adores and, and obsesses over. Jesus is the incomparable Christ. And he is in a league all his own. He alone is the beloved son of God. He is the one that God calls them and calls you and calls me to look at and to listen to. Listen to him. Not because it all makes sense. Not because everything's been fully explained to your satisfaction and you have stamped his agenda with your seal of approval. That's not what this is about. Listen to him because of who he is. He is unlike any other. He is the beloved son of God. And it's not that what he calls us to is ever like illogical or nonsensical. That's not the case. It's that his ways are not our ways. Is that he is God, and that means that he knows more than we do. We're finite, he's infinite. And there is this plan that's unfolding that, that, that he wants us to walk on, that he wants to play out in our lives. And as we look back on it, we can look back and see the wisdom and the goodness of his ways. But in the moment, listening and following, it's a matter of faith. It's, a, it's an act of trust. And so here's a, here's a simple prayer to pray. Lord, hit me with the high beams, right? There's so many ways that we can see a diminished Jesus, that we can see him for less than who he really is. Jesus became one of us. He lived his life in the world just like us, but in a way that's so crucial to grasp, Jesus is nothing like us. And we've got to figure that out too. He's perfect. He's pure. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's awesome. He's magnificent. He's even a little bit scary. He's unlike any other. And that's the Jesus the disciples met that day. And that's the Jesus we meet in this book through these pages of scripture. This is the Jesus who calls you and calls me into a life of radical discipleship. Follow him. He's the one who calls us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. And he's the one the Holy Spirit is actively working to illuminate in our lives. The high beams are still on him because nothing matters more than seeing Jesus for who he is. So let me, let me just sum it up in a slightly different way, just in case that high beam metaphor isn't working for you. Uh, one of the relationship principles that uh, Diane and I have learned um, throughout the years, or at least what she has learned about me, is that if she wants me to get something, um, she can't drop hints about it. 
she has to drop bombs. All right, anybody relate to that? Yes, I, I am thick, I am dense, and the indirect approach, I know it ought to work, right? I wish it did work, but nine times out of 10, I cannot catch a clue. It is just a byproduct of I don't know what. Um, if I need it to be loud, I need it to be clear, and if you don't hit me over the head with it, then there's a really strong chance that I'm going to miss out on it. That's what the disciples were like when it came to Jesus. The indirect approach wasn't doing the job. They've been, they've been walking with Jesus all this time, and they're still scratching their heads. They still don't get it. And, and, and this, this moment, this, this scene is, is God dropping the bomb, right? This is God flipping on those high beams. Look at my son. It's him. Jesus, he is the one, it's him and no one else. Listen to him, let him lead you, and keep on following. So are you looking at a low-beam Jesus or a high-beam Jesus? The low-beam Jesus is all you see is that diminished him. Is He might be someone you're like, yeah, you know, I, I can appreciate him. He's kind of inspiring. The high-beam Jesus is more than appreciated. He's, he's adored. The high-beam Jesus isn't just someone to just consider. He's someone to obey, to listen to, no matter what, even if he calls us to, to lay down our lives, to take up our crosses, to follow him to wherever he's going. And so when you're at that crossroads, when you're at that place in life where you don't know what to do, when nothing seems to make sense, Look at him. See him for who he is. Listen to what he says. And let him keep on living your life. I can only speak for myself up to this point in my spiritual journey, but there has never been a time when I have looked back at following Jesus and said, you know what, I wish I hadn't done what Jesus told me to. I really regret those moments of obedience. Never. I do have a lot of regrets, but it's typically for those times when I failed to follow. Now, this, this mountaintop moment, this left a lasting impression on Peter's life. You know, he's, he's still got a ways to go. He's still this impetuous disciple. The struggles are far from over. We're going to see a lot more of that. But, but later on at the end of his life, he writes this book called Second Peter. It's a letter. And he mentions this moment. In Second in, in Peter 1.16, he says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain." Just, just in case you get the idea that, yeah, this whole Jesus thing, this is a myth. This is a metaphor. They're not talking literally. This is all made-up legends. No, that's not the case. The high beams of the Father are set on the Son. And so when you're at that crossroads, you may not get explanations, but when you open up this book, you do get revelation. Jesus revealed 
for who he is. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his glorious face. See him for who he is. It was enough for them, and it's enough for you and for me. Let's pray together.